What? The table. The, the table. Where's this guy? My buddy. Um, what? I thought. What? Was it your leader or your friends? Did you get peer pressured? It was Dallas. Let me tell my all-time favorite Dallas story of all time. Dallas, stand up real quick. <laughs> Dallas, it was, I think, three, year, three years ago, Sarah. Uh, we had man dinner, and we had a bench press competition with a massive log in man dinner. And Dallas challenged everyone at the camp that he could rep it more times than anyone. And I picked a random youth pastor, and Dallas got destroyed. But then we found out that Dallas was just being kind, and he is an absolute beast. Everyone give it up for Dallas. Okay. Um, well, hey, did you guys have a good day today? Uh, give me some highlights. Talk to me. Highlights of the day. Rec time, what? Well, this thing is pretty sweet. What do we got here? Shark? Uh, okay. Well, can I do this? Uh, I, I want to pray once more. And I've said this before. Uh, the reason I pray, even during music, I walk into that little closet back there sometimes. Uh, I, do, I typically go in that closet for two reasons. Uh, to get a cough drop, because I kind of have this weird thing where I just love them. And uh, I know, I know. And uh, to pray before I come and communicate with you guys, because here is, uh, here's what's on my heart tonight. I get to speak on my favorite subject, and, or one of them at least, and I feel like there's so much I want to say. And the difficulty with me, I was just telling Mikey, it's not figuring out how to fill a time slot of 45 minutes. It's figuring out how to condense years and years of study. And it'd be like, it'd be like asking you to, to talk about what you love the most and what you're most grateful for. And so there's so much I want to say, and, and here's why I pray. It's not a ritual. It's not a tradition. It's not just something we do as we transition from like laugh time into serious time. And even when I say, would you pray with me, so often when someone says, would you pray with me, all you do is bow your head and you kind of mindlessly kind of try to numb the minute. When I say pray with me, what I mean by that is we all need to pray together for something tonight. What we need to do is ask God for help. And I'm not just asking God for help because I'm the one preaching. You need to ask God for help because... If I was absolutely flawless in my preaching, apart from the Spirit of God, there is absolutely nothing worthwhile or effective in your life that takes place. You need God's help. And I could have every single word here dialed, but if God wasn't working in your heart and in your mind, nothing of value is going to happen. And so that's when I pray. And I would say one other thing. Sometimes I get asked, and I think it's sometimes people just say it's semantics. Hey, are you speaking at camp? Or, hey, I'm going to give a message. Or someone came up to me today and said, I liked your speech this morning. For the rest of the week, I'm going to use the word preaching. And Sarah mentioned it last night. She said preaching. And I, I want you to know the difference between what that means. 
when I preach and why I think that's a different word than teaching or speaking or a speech or a message or a talk or a conversation. When the Bible talks about preaching, what it's talking about is that I am here not to give my opinions I'm not here to like cadence the laughs with the truth so that you both love me and then every time you're offended by me, I come back with something funny. I'm here to open up the word of God so that you might understand it. I'm not here to craft some sort of compelling talk. I'm here to tell you exactly what the word of God says. And sometimes people wonder, well, why do so many people leave the church at 18? I think part of it is because pastors need to understand that the goal, my goal, is to light myself on fire with the burden and passion for the word of God and for you to watch me burn. I'm not giving a talk. I'm not giving a speech. I want you to understand we're going to the word of God, and when we do that, we need God's help. So can you pray with me? Okay. God, we are so grateful that in a world of lies and confusion, ambiguity and obscurity, we have the truth. We just heard it. Right now, I don't think we think about this, every single day, people die in the name of Jesus Christ. There are countless thousands gathered right now in hiding. Last night at church on Sunday, there are millions of people in China that meet underground to open up the word of God. One of the most amazing things I've ever seen is the church in China opening up a suitcase of Bibles that have been smuggled in. And it's like watching them find great riches, tears, and hugs. Because what we have here is precious. And only when we consider the world of brokenness and confusion can we ever cry out and go, man, God, have you revealed yourself? And we know you have in your word. God, the topic tonight is of great importance. And so would you fill me with your spirit so that I might be clear. I'm so thankful I have the rest of the week to clarify what will be said tonight because unless we understand this evening what you communicate to us through your word, everything else that we'll say is based upon understanding that the Bible is the word of God. And so, Lord, I pray that for those in here that know you, that you would give them a great certainty of that reality. We need you, God, and we pray this in your name. And everybody said, amen. amen. Okay. John 1, open up your Bibles. Give me a yip-yip when you're there. I don't believe that you were already there. All righty. Let me read. I'm in John 1, verse 35. This morning we talked about how Jesus is the eternal God. He's the creator and the sustainer of all things. Nothing in all of creation happened by accident. Colossians 1 says that everything that, was been, that has been made has been made through him and for him. For him, because everything God made is for his own glory. And he became a man and he dwelt amongst us. 
And now we're continuing on in that story that the eternal God, the creator of all things, he became a man. And now there's going to be conversations and passages within scripture that reveal his identity to us. So let's read John 1, 35. And again, the next day, John the Baptist, we missed a little bit of a section, but he is here as the forerunner for the Messiah. He's going to say in verse 29, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We're going to talk about that as well. But in verse 35, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, behold, the lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said, what do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. Any Peters in the house? That name will come back. All right, moving on. The next day he purposed to go into Galilee and he found Philip and Jesus said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida of the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, watch this. We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said to him, behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens open and the the angels of God descending and descending on the son of man. My purpose tonight is twofold. Because I've been assigned with a twofold task. So if you don't know how this works, Sarah and Mikey, they work and they work to give us direction as speakers for where we're going. And my assignment is twofold. Number one, to show you that the scripture is the word of God and that it is sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary for your life. But not only that, to show you that the Bible, the word of God, has one central theme, Jesus Christ. Now, question for you. How many of you guys saw the movie Top Gun? Anybody, the new one came out? Okay. Uh, I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. But I saw The Last Samurai, so I love Tom Cruise. So Tom Cruise, though, and I want to, I want to explain this. Tom Cruise is second in command for a religion known as Scientology. And uh, David Miscavige, who's the leader of the religion, he served as the best man at one of Tom's previous weddings. Tom says that he has placed his faith in Scientology because he was healed from his dyslexia. So you can read all this and find it on YouTube. But the religion is founded by a guy named L. Ron Hubbard, and he has written over 600 fiction books. He holds the record for the most works published by a fiction author. 
And one of those works essentially became the religion of Scientology, which many of the elite celebrities find themselves members of, like Tom Cruise or John Travolta. And this is what they believe. L. Ron Hubbard claims that billions of extraterrestrial beings were sent to Earth by Xenu, the director of the Galactic Confederacy. Comprised, I mean, this is serious. So comprised of 26 stars and 76 planets, including Earth. And here's what happened. 75 million years ago, Xenu came and dumped billions of thetons, which are souls, into a volcano. And it killed them and it released their thetons into the atmosphere. That's their soul. And those souls bonded with different people, and those people are now described by their negative emotions and experiences, meaning that all the difficulties in your past is because you haven't worked out the negative experience that 75 million years ago, many, many reincarnations ago, you were dumped into a volcano by Xenu, the dictator of the Galactic Confederacy. Hold on, hold on. There's more. I want you to understand this. So L. Ron Hubbard was asked, who is Jesus? And here's what L. Ron Hubbard said. He said, Jesus never existed as a person, but he is rather an electronic idea implanted by the true powers of the universe into the mind of someone between incarnations about 600 BC. This implant is labeled R6. I'm asking for a little bit of maturity here, okay? Can we agree on that? Okay. This implant is labeled R6 and occurred while this person between incarnations was watching a madman or something. He says, Jesus is nothing more than electronic, mystical, biological implant and an implant that has all the characteristics of a pedophile. Okay, so here's, here's what millions of people are in this religion. Your boy Tom Cruise is second in command who believe that Jesus Christ was basically from a misfire biologically 2,600 years ago in between incarnations and the implant is labeled R6. When asked what the difference is between Scientology and Christianity, he said the massive difference is that, Christian, or that Scientology is based solely on reason, which is hard to believe, right? You read that and you go, that's bizarre, right? It is a little bizarre. But then you look at it, you go, you watch shows and movies on a weekly basis where the celebrities and actors and actresses within those movies believe exactly that. The identity of Jesus Christ is constantly under attack. Who was Jesus? Some say he's a prophet. We talked about this this morning. Some say he's an enlightened teacher. In other contexts, L. Ron Hubbard and non-confidential things and other articles, he had said that maybe he was an enlightened man. But then writing for his own journals, he says that he's a mystical, made-up idea. 
the identity of Jesus Christ is under attack. And the reason why the identity of Christ is under attack is because the Bible has always been under attack and it's not viewed to be the authoritative word of God. Who was Jesus? Why did he come? Well, in order to understand Jesus' identity, we must go to the book where he has revealed himself. Tonight we're going to talk about his identity and we're going to look at Scripture's holistic theme. If I asked you what is the Bible all about and I said, give me one word, what's the one word answer? Jesus. And sometimes it seems like a Sunday school answer, but sometimes I also don't want us to miss the forest for the trees. The theme of the Bible is Jesus Christ. The war against the Bible is something that we should expect from people of different religions or different faiths. But what we have seen, what I have seen more and more, is that the Bible is under attack from friendly fire, from those who claim to follow Christ and often are the ones who are most susceptible to compromise on the Bible's stance on truth, sexuality, marriage, gender, Jesus' identity. What's happened is that the mission and the movement to accommodate the culture has caused the world, the Christian environment especially, to, dim- to be diminished in their confidence that this word is true. And so it's viewed as maybe one of the resources that can be helpful to you as you pursue a life of spirituality. But the dismissal of the truth is nothing new. It's something that we saw this morning is something very old. In Genesis 3, the serpent comes to Eve, right? And we're going to be circling back to this a few times. It comes to Eve, and the first attack in human history is an attack upon the word of God. Satan comes, and what does he say? He doesn't say like this, this, and you know, like you don't believe this guy. He says, did God really say? He cast doubt upon what God has said in his word. And then what he wants to do is make it seem like God's word is narrow, restrictive. God wants you on a leash, Eve. He hates when you have joy. He hates when you're delighted. What he wants is to keep you down there because he wants to be king. He doesn't want any rivals. And he knows that in the moment that you partake of the fruit of the tree of good and evil, you'll be like him. And he's an insecure God. And so the first attack on scripture is, did God really say? If you're going to understand, if we're going to talk about a theme on truth, you have to understand something fundamentally. The Bible is the absolute word of God, and it holds total authority in our lives. The battle for the Bible is the battle for the truth, and the truth is under relentless and endless assault, and the Christian's call is to commit their life to the truth of God's word. What makes this difficult is that those who should be aligning with us in the call to contend for the truth are often those in the church who are afraid, apologetic, and embarrassed to teach and instruct what the Bible very clearly says. I'm going to read a quote by Martin Luther. He says this, and I just found this this, a few days ago. He says, "If if I profess with the loudest voice in clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God except 
that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking. I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing him. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all the battlefield besides is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. Luther is saying, if you're part of the Lord's army, you need to fight the battle where the battle is most intense. And you know where the battle is most intense? The battle for the truth. And do you know the front lines of the battle for the truth? The front line of the battle is, is this the word of God? We tracking? Okay. Here's what we need to understand, okay? First of all, the people that are writing the Bible, they were never trying to conjure up any sort of experience. Here's, here's what we're going to see over and over again. And uh, Turn to 1 John, okay? I want you to so, show you something from the same author, which I think is important. 1 John, it's at the end of your New Testament. Okay, so in John 1, it says, we have found the Messiah. We're going to talk about that in a minute, but it, I'll give you a little teaser trailer. What they're getting at is that we have found the one that all of the Old Testament is anticipating. But the people that are writing these things are people that were actually there. They were eyewitnesses of what happened. First John. What was from the beginning, chapter 1, 1. He says, what we have seen, or what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Now, this sounds very much like the beginning of his gospel. And the life was manifested. That's very similar to 114 of John. And we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Here's what John is saying. He's saying, hey, what, everything I'm about to tell you in the gospel, it's not something I heard from someone else at a fire pit. It's not like we were having some Topo Chico's and I said, hey, pass me the Doritos. What about this God thing? He says, no, I actually saw it. He says, that which was from the beginning, that which we have seen, that which we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life and the life was manifest to us. And I've seen it and I've seen it and I've seen it. And the disciples are going to say this over and over again. I saw this with my very own eyes. The testimony that you're hearing is not made up. It didn't go fire pit to fire pit. It's something I saw. And I'm an eyewitness testimony to this. In the court of law, I've talked about this before. What's like, what is the most important thing, let's say in a murder trial? What is it? Eyewitness testimony. So if you've ever seen like a movie like where there's mafia people and there's some like weird accountant guy that has like, he saw someone kill someone and like, we need to get him to the stand. It's because in the court of law, eyewitness testimony means everything. And in the Bible, one of the things that they're trying to compound is that this isn't some made up story. Okay, turn to 2 Peter. It's a few books back, okay? It's one book back. Okay, 2 Peter 1, verse 16. Give me a yip, yip. Okay, he says this. For we do not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the coming and the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, but we were, what? Eyewitnesses of his majesty. 
For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. I'll explain what that means. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Let me pause here. Peter is saying, I love this. The truth of Jesus Christ is not from our six implant. He says, I'm a real guy. And it says, we don't follow cleverly devised tales. This isn't a fantastic story. This isn't the Chronicles of Narnia. I saw this. I saw this. I saw Jesus die on the cross. Watch verse 17. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. What Peter's talking about here is a part of scripture in Mark 9. It's called the transfiguration. Big word, important story. In Mark 9, there's this portion where Jesus takes his three main homies, Peter, James, and John, and he goes up to a mountain, and it says he transfigures before them. And Moses and Elijah, if you don't know who those guys are, it's okay. They're the two main dudes, two of them, in the Old Testament. And there, when Moses and Elijah, I mean, the disciples would have been freaking out. They're looking at them, and it says a voice from heaven comes out of the sky and says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. I'm pleased in him. And it says there that in Mark 9, Peter said, we can't handle what we're seeing. Let us build shelters for your glory. And, and Jesus didn't take them up one by one. He brought them up in a pair of three because in the abundance of, wi- uh, of counsel, or, uh, with many witnesses, you can trust it. Two or three witnesses. So it can be trusted event. He's saying, we see Moses, we we see Elijah, we hear the voice of God. They said, please let us build shelters for your glory. If you ever want to have an experience, you know, God, show me who you are. I want to see something crazy. Peter, James, and John saw it. They saw the two pillars of faithfulness in the Old Testament. The voice of God came out of the heavens and said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And they were rocked. This would have been an experience that they talked about the rest of their lives. But I want you to understand something about experiences, and I want you to understand something about divine revelation. You live in a world that longs to hear from the voice of God, that longs to have a spiritual experience. Am I wrong? They want it. God, show me who you are. Show me something powerful. I want to show you what Peter says next. Verse 18, he says, We ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made more sure. You know what this means? It means that Peter places more faith, trust, and credibility. The author of the scripture, Peter's saying. I'm writing this, Peter's saying. He says he places more faith and trust and credibility and certainty in what you hold in your laps than he did on what he saw with his own two eyes. Peter was never longing for another spiritual experience. He was longing for deeper understanding of the word of God. 
Do you want to hear God speak? Open up the Bible and read it out loud. And this is what the writers of the New Testament are going to tell you. These are the ones that saw miracles. They're saying experiences, you can't always trust them. Did you see that the same way I saw it? There's perspective. He says, but I have something that is absolutely sure. And it's that the word of God is what you need to know God. And with our remaining time, what I want to do tonight, and there's so much I would want to say on the subject and so many passages that I would love to teach and I could legitimately be here with you for hours is I want to declare to you five realities about Scripture. I'm going to cover the first four briefly, and I want to land on the fifth and final one with greater emphasis. Can we do that? If you're a note taker, five realities about the Word of God. And I'm going to be bouncing around so you can write these passages down because tonight, unlike other nights, I'm going to survey the Scripture with you. Now, the Bible, number one, the first four are going to be in an acronym, and I talked about this, I think, three or four years ago. Scan, but the Bible, number one, is sufficient. Here's what that means. In Hebrews 1, it says, Long ago, God spoke to us in many portions and in many ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son, Jesus Christ, whom he has appointed the heir of all things. Here's what it's saying. Long ago, God spoke to people through donkeys, through writing on a wall. He spoke to them in a number of different ways, but in these last days, that's the time you live in right now. God has spoken through his son, Jesus Christ. And the way that God in Jesus Christ, has revealed himself is through his very word. And what the Bible's going to teach over and over and over again, and you live in a culture, even a church culture that denies this, is that the Bible is sufficient. It's what you need, Peter is going to say. Everything you need pertaining to a life of godliness is given to you through and in God's word as God's spirit uses his word to conform you into the image of his son. Maybe you've struggled, you know, maybe some of you are seniors and you've struggled with, what should I do with my life? What's my next step? And you've wanted a more direct, personal revelation of God. Listen to Peter's own testimony. You don't need another experience. You need a deeper understanding of God's word. You don't need a new revelation from heaven. You need a deeper understanding of divine revelation as revealed in God's truth. You might read the Bible regularly but over time it might get boring or stale to you and so you long for new words, new revelation, new experiences to bring you closer to God. But the Bible's going to say, no, you don't. If you want to know God, you surround your life with God's people who point you to God's word and you beg God's spirit as we prayed this morning, open my eyes, O God, Psalm 119, 118, that I may behold the wonderful things that are within your word. We don't have to make the Bible come alive. We need living ears to hear the living word. So number two, God's word is sufficient, number one. Number two, God's word is clear. Here's what that means. And this is a, this is a I think I had a few pages written on this, and I just deleted it because I didn't want to get lost in it. But I, this matters to me so much. God's word is clear. Here's what you will hear. There's so much here, it's muddy, it's obscure, it's, amb you know, it's ambiguous. You can never actually understand. There's so much complexities of the different genres and literature styles and the languages. You can't actually understand it unless you're a scholar. No, God revealed himself 
in terms that not just PhDs could understand, but so that children could understand it and obey it. Anytime someone tries to overly obscure the Bible, you need to go, no, God has revealed himself and he says, let the little children come. And he's not just calling for children to sit on his lap. He's calling for children to devote their life to the word of God. King Josiah found the word of God when he was a teenager and turned the entire nation towards God. The entire nation of, entire history of God moving people and moving nations is a testimony of teenagers understanding the truth and being lit on fire about it. God's word is clear. Last summer, we looked at one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 30. Moses is about to die, and the people are freaking out because Moses is the mediator. We're going to talk about this over the next few days. He's a prophet, and, and the role of a prophet is to communicate God's word to God's people. They were revealers of God's truth. And Moses is the man. He had led them out of Egypt, he had been with them for a number of years and as they kind of wander to the promised land. And when he's about to die, the people are freaking out because they're wondering, how on earth are we going to hear from God if our main guy Moses leaves? And Moses says, this word that I'm giving to you, it's, it's understandable. You don't have to go up to the heaven to, to, to hear from God. You don't have to cross the sea. You know what you have to do to hear from God? You don't need me. You don't need Hume Lake. You need a Bible, and you need humility to say, God, show me who you are. And you need some diligence, because nothing ever, nothing good has ever come to lazy people. God's word is clear. I remember reading this quote by R.C. Sproul when I was 15. He says, what kind of a God would reveal his love and redemption in terms that are so technical and concepts so profound that only an elite group of scholars and professionals could even understand him. He's asking the question, what kind of a God reveals himself to people that only the scholars at Ivy League schools can understand who that God is? You know the answer? Not my God. And not yours if you're in Christ. Amen? God's word is sufficient, it's clear. Number three, God's word is authoritative. Whether you know it or not, there is something in your life that has the final word. And by final word, I mean absolute authority. It might be your feelings, it might be your preferences, it might be a person, it might be opinions. For the Christian, you must understand this. The final authority is always God's word. Always. And so Jesus comes as the fulfillment. I'm going to touch on it tonight because there's a lot I need to say here, but it's going to ripple into the next four days. Jesus comes as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And he's going to say, I've come to fulfill all scripture. And what we know in the Old Testament is that God is authoritative over his people. His word is the final word. And Jesus is going to say the same exact thing. Scripture never speaks in a whisper. I was watching a YouTube video the other day of a pastor that said the Bible whispers about sexual sin. It doesn't say a lot. It's maybe a whisper. There's other things that God talks more prominently about, like his love, 
what the Bible whispers about sexual sin or what God thinks about sexuality, marriage. Now, let me just tell you this. The Bible never whispers. The Bible never stumbles, never mumbles. Every time God speaks, he thunders from his word. When he says he loves you, he loves you. When he says he does not tolerate sin, he does not tolerate sin. And he is the king of the universe. And because he is king, he has total sovereignty and authority over all things. And the way in which you know his authority is because he has authoritatively revealed himself in his word. This is a tough one. Because God's word being authoritative means that we can't dismiss. You saw this in the video from Megan. We can't dismiss what we don't like from it. You know, Thomas Jefferson had a Jefferson Bible, right? And what the Jefferson Bible was is that Thomas Jefferson essentially, you know, the guy, you know, revolution, stuff like that. Everyone know who Thomas Jefferson is? I don't know, you know, COVID, you know, things, people weren't in school, you never know. Um, okay, just making sure. I, there's a lot of blank faces for a second there. Um, what Thomas Jefferson did is he made a Bible where he cut out from the Bible sections he didn't like. Does that seem much different than what we do today? We might not cut it out with scissors, but we dismiss it by saying, that's not what God means. And I don't want to follow a God that says that. God's word is sufficient, it's clear, it's authoritative, and it's N, letter N here in scan, necessary. Because without the love of God, or without the, the word of God, I said it, you can never understand the unfathomable love of God. How many of you have heard that God loves you? Okay. Every single person here, for the most part, has heard that God loves you. Do you know where that love is revealed? It's revealed as you deeply understand his truth. And you will never deeply understand his love if you don't deeply understand his word. And so God's word is necessary because apart from it, you will always have a shallow and superficial understanding of the love of God. And here's what you need to understand as well. It says in 1 John that we love because what? Okay, if you're new, I want to repeat it. It says that the Christian loves God because God first loved us. Your love for God will always, always, always be in direct proportion to the depth of your understanding of God's love for you as revealed in Scripture. Shallow understanding of God's character, His holiness, shallow understanding of His love, shallow understanding of God's love for you, shallow love for Him in return, shallow love for God in return, inconsistent obedience, half-hearted pursuit. You need God's word. And here's where, fifth and finally, what I want to talk about this evening. Sarah, what time do I need to be done? Okay, yeah, don't tell me that. Everyone, buckle in. Um, okay, 
Number five here. God's word is sufficient. It's clear. It's authoritative. It's necessary. And number five here. God's word points to one central person. And there is one central theme. Jesus Christ. Okay, back to John 1, okay? And I'm going to just introduce this this evening because inevitably it's going to influence the next few days of preaching here. John 1, it says that John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God. And then it says in verse 41, We have found the Messiah which translated means the Christ. Okay, here's what you need to understand. I'm going to say it very basic, and then we'll go from there. Everything in the Old Testament, explicitly or implicitly, is pointing towards Jesus Christ. Everything. So anytime you hear that the Old Testament is not important for your faith, you need to understand this. Jesus shows up on the scene and says, I am the fulfillment of the Old Testament. The apostles are going to preach, and they're going to say, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. If you don't understand what Jesus was doing in the Old Testament, you don't understand what he came to fulfill. He is the fulfillment of something. Long-awaited anticipation. I'll never, ever forget five years ago in Israel. I went there by myself the first time I went, right before I started working here. I see a guy mobbing in a Jeep with a megaphone, like a wreck megaphone. I'm like, what is going on here? Am I getting pranked? I said, what are they saying? What are they saying? What's that guy saying? Why is he all so worked up? The Jewish man. What's he saying? He's saying, where is the Messiah? Where is the Messiah? Where is the Messiah? If you go right now to Israel against the Wailing Wall, there will be Jewish men there shaking back and forth like this. Have you seen it? You know what they're doing? It's because they're trying to show absolute sincerity. It's meaning that with all my heart, I'm praying something. They're not just praying like this. They're going, please, please. And you know what they're praying for? I remember going into the room and talking with them, spending some time with them. They're begging God to send his Messiah now, what's the Messiah? Well, the Messiah, well, Jesus Christ. First of all, understand this. Christ and Messiah are one and the same. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a title. And the title means anointed one. And it's going to be used 500 times in the New Testament. Christ, Christ, Christ. And there are 500 references to it in the New Testament. And the Messiah means one thing. It means anointed one. Anointed one. Now, there are three types of people in the Old Testament that were anointed with oil. And it wasn't medicinal, it was because of a symbol. It meant that they were doing something in a, medi, in a mediatorial office for God. That means in the middle of. Three types of people, prophets, priests, and kings. And Jesus came to fulfill all of those different offices as the Messiah. But all of scripture is pointing. Now turn over to John 5, and I want you to see something. Jesus is talking to the Jewish people here. He's talking to the Pharisees. And John 5, 37. People are getting worked up. We're going to talk about this tomorrow night because Jesus heals a guy on, on the Sabbath, which was a big no-no. You don't do that. 
at least in their mind. John 5, 37, this is Jesus talking. And the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you did not believe him whom he sent. Now watch this. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. But it is they that testify about me. What are the scriptures at this point? It's just the Old Testament. Jesus is saying, you're searching the scriptures. Don't you get it? The Old Testament is pointing towards me. You're searching them and searching them. You're looking at every line, every word, and every space in between. But you've missed everything because all of it is pointing towards me. Now watch this. And you are unwilling to come. You're unwilling. You refuse to believe what's right in front of you so that you might have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in yourself. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. Now watch this. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Okay, pause. What we know to be true biblically is that when people die, they will instantly be in the presence of God, and they will give an account for their life. One day you will stand before a holy God. Tomorrow, in 50 years, I don't know, but it is absolutely going to happen. Death bats a thousand percent, okay? Everybody dies. Now, when you die, you're going to give an account before God, and it's a courtroom type of scene. Now, in a courtroom, there's a prosecutor, meaning someone going, this man over here is guilty, I want to show you something. Now, who do you think the prosecutor is for those who don't believe in God? Well, maybe you think it's God himself. But here's what Jesus is going to say. I mean, I've been blown away at this. He says, do not think I will accuse you before the Father. The one who will accuse you is Moses, in whom you have sent your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Here's what Jesus is saying. When you meet God face to face, and he's telling this to the Jewish people, but for our purposes, we need to understand how it relates to our Old Testament understanding and Jesus' fulfillment of it. He's saying, when you stand before God, the prosecutor there will be Moses, the one that you say showed you everything about who God is, the one who wrote the law, the opening section of the scripture, He's going to prosecute you and say, how did you miss it? All of the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus Christ. You're trying to find life there, but you won't believe in whom the entire Bible is pointing towards, Jesus Christ. In Luke 24, there's a section. It's my favorite section of scripture. I think one of them at at least, and it's after Jesus has risen from the dead. And Jesus is walking with two people on the road to Emmaus. Ah, just turn there. It's awesome. Come on. Okay. Luke 24, two pages back. Okay. And, and this idea I'm going to cover over the next few days as well. Because I want to do it justice. And... You're understanding, okay, you know the song Amazing Grace? I harp on this one. 
One of the things I really wanted when I was 17, 18, is to mean what I'm singing when I sing that song. I wanted that so bad. My dad's a pastor. I grew up in the truth. And I watched everyone sing Amazing Grace, and I go, come on. I don't really think it's amazing. I acknowledge that I'm sinful, and I acknowledge God is gracious. I acknowledge grace. But I really went, man, I want it to be amazing. And your depth and the de- degree to which you go, God, you are amazing, is always going to be further magnified as you understand how Jesus is the fulfillment of all of Scripture. In Luke 24, after the resurrection, two of them, it says in verse 13, very day, or they were going to a village named Emmaus, which is about seven miles from Jerusalem. These are two of Jesus' disciples. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. And while they were walking, talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. Verse 16, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. They didn't know it was him, okay? Something was happening here. They just didn't know it was Jesus. And he said to them, what are the words that you were exchanging with one another while you are still walking? And they stood still. I mean, literally, it was a moment like this. And he asked them the question, and they just pause. And they're going to respond and say, are you serious? What are we discussing? Are you the only one in Israel that doesn't know what just happened? One of them named Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem, unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? That's Jesus. And they said to him, Are you serious? That Jesus, that this guy, the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word and sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. Okay, what's so this? this? We thought that this was the guy. We thought he was the Messiah. We were hoping that it was he, verse 21, who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. But also some woman among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the woman also had said, but him they did not see. He's saying, okay, we heard he was risen from the dead, but I mean, come on. We saw this guy. He was slaughtered. He was slaughtered. There was a spear in his side. There's blood everywhere. They put a crown of thorns and they rammed it into his head. Nails. They beat him half to death and then they crucified him. You should have seen it. It was horrible. Jesus' response is awesome. If there was one place I could travel back to, it would be this seven-mile walk from Emmaus to Jerusalem. Easy. Oh, foolish men, and slow of heart to believe, verse 25, in all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all of the prophets, that's that's the Old Testament, Moses and the prophet, that just means all of the Old Testament. He explained to them the things concerning himself in all of the scriptures. They still don't know it's him, though. He's just explaining the Bible to them. And as they were approaching the village where they were going, and he acted as though he were going further, they urged him saying, stay with us for it is getting toward evening and the day is now nearly over. Here's what's happening so far. Jesus said, don't you get it? All of the Old Testament is pointing towards a certain reality. 
God is holy. Page three of the Bible, sin enters in. Page three of the Bible, also there is a promise. One day someone's going to come and he's going to redeem everything that is broken. God is holy. He doesn't just dismiss sin. He doesn't go, eh, never mind. Always, 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 sin has to be paid for. And the way that sin is always paid for is through a bloody sacrifice. And so all of the Old Testament, there's these sacrifices, there's priests. You know what priests do? Well, they're essentially butchers who offer up sacrifices over and over and over again. Lambs, pure, innocent, blameless lambs, so that the people are constantly reminded God does not mess around with sin. He is holy, but because he's also gracious and loving, he provides a sacrifice. He would have gone to Genesis 22 and go, hey, remember when Abraham Abraham took Isaac up and he said, hey, there has to be a sacrifice. You must sacrifice your only son. But God provided a ram in the thicket. He provided a substitute. He's going to say, don't you understand that eventually there would have to be a final sacrifice, a final substitute, once and for all, a better priest, someone that didn't also have to offer sacrifices for himself. And this is all they're hearing at this point. Seven miles. I don't know how many. I mean, that's a, well, if you're walking 15 minutes a mile, it's a two-hour walk. And at the end of a two-hour walk, they're going, come on, stay with us, dude. We want to hear more about this because the Bible is sweet. It's not boring. Last night we were saying it's not ancient or archaic. It's awesome. And so they're going, dude, please stay with us. They urged him. You know what that means? Dude, buy the collar, please. You got you to spend the night. This is awesome. And it says that Jesus did that. And when he reclined to the table with them, verse 30, he took the bread and blessed it. And breaking it, he began giving it to them. Then their eyes were opened. And here's what happened. I don't know what happened here. Maybe it was Jesus went to grab a cup and they just saw a gaping hole in his hand. It says their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. Now, here's what's awesome. I want you to think about the story that they would have told. Imagine this. Hey, dude, you won't, you won't believe it. Okay, so me and Bob walking to Jerusalem. This rando comes up next to us. Turns out it's Jesus, the son of God. We asked him to make a purple lion. Boom, did it. You know, like whatever. No, that's not their story. Here's their story. Verse 33 32, they said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? Do you know what they were most pumped up about? A deeper understanding of the word of God. Now watch this. They begin to relate their experiences on the road and how we recognize them. And then here's what Jesus is going to do. He's going to go next into the disciples' room. Verse 39, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see for yourself. And then verse 44, and he said, now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law, that's the Old Testament of Moses, and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Verse 45, This is awesome. Then he opened their minds to understand 
the scriptures. And do you know what their response is? Verse 52, and they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. The Bible is not just inerrant, meaning it doesn't have any errors. It is integrated, meaning it all fits together. And one of the greatest things anybody can do is to provide for you a deeper understanding of it. And the people respond, and this is why the goal of preaching is never just to leave you all pumped up. It would be easier for me to make you laugh than it would be for me to go, let me tell you something. My goal on Friday night or when you go home on Saturday is not just to get to say uh, that was a good message or I was encouraged or challenged. It is to leave you going. My heart was burning when the scriptures were explained to me because I live in a context where even churches at times think that what I want to hear is shallow, superficial, self-help messages. Jesus shows up on the scene and says, let me tell you, I am the fulfillment of all these things. All of the word of God points to one person. It's sufficient, it's clear, it's the final authority, it's necessary. And if you want to understand the love of God, you have to understand that holistically speaking, all of the Bible points to him. I was reading an article, and I'll be done here, in the Wall Street Journal, which has become like a new spot for me to read. I'm getting old. It says, the title of the article is, The Churches in Europe, Are They All Going on Sale? It's hard to read. It says this, in Bristol, England, the former St. Paul's Church has now become a circus training school. Operators say the high ceilings are perfect for aerial equipment like trapezes. It says in Edinburgh, Scotland, a Luther church has become a Frankenstein-themed bar featuring bubbling test tubes, laser, lasers, and a life-size Frankenstein monster descending from the ceiling at midnight. James McDonald, here's he's a serial investor, what he's doing is going and buying up all these old empty churches that no one goes to anymore. And he's turning them into pubs in the UK. Hundreds and hundreds of churches. He says, do you have any complaints about your business strategy, James? He says, no one cares. There are hundreds and hundreds of empty churches. No one goes to them. You know why people leave the church? is because they think that the truth taught at church is a truth and not the truth. Churches are empty because they think church is optional, because they think truth is optional, because they think the word of God can be dismissed and denied. But the Christian, you need to settle this conviction upon your heart. I am committed to Christ, so I am committed to the truth. And because I am committed to the truth, I must be committed to God's word because it is the only source of truth in a world of lies. Amen? Let me pray. Sorry I was a little long. God, we love you. And we're thankful for your son, Jesus Christ, and we're thankful for the living and active word of God. Living means that we do not study an antiquated document. When we open up the word of God, God speaks. And so, Lord, we're thankful for it. 
There's so much that could have been said, and we're thankful for more time together. What a joy to be here. What an amazing place. What an amazing camp. We're so thankful for the hundreds of staff that are here right now making this possible. Thank you for the youth pastors, for the churches. God, we're thankful for your son, Jesus Christ, who is the reason that we gather and the reason this camp exists. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in your name. And all God's people said...